You're listening to Torah Classes with Rabbi Mendy Goldberg. This class is a recording from a live class. Okay, good afternoon. Today is uh, Monday the 23rd of Tevis, which is also right before the 24th of Tevis. The 24th of Tevis is the yurt site of the Alter Rebbe, the first Chabad Rebbe. And the first Chabad Rebbe who taught us, who wrote the Tanya, who taught us about the concepts of learning Hasidism and the depths of understanding and appreciating the teachings of the Torah, not only the uh, simple meaning, but also the esoteric and the deeper Kabbalistic inner significance of every part of the Torah reading. In fact, the Alter Rebbe was the one who said the statement, we have to live with the times. And he wasn't referring to the New York Times. He was referring to, of course, that we have to live with the times, meaning what we read about in the Torah reading is not just merely a history book of what happened many years ago, but it also has a contemporary application to what we're in our practical and daily life, and that's why in each one of the classes we look to see how we can apply it in our daily life. There was a very famous Jewish psychologist by the name of Abraham Maslow. One of the things that Maslow was famous for was his concept of the hierarchy of needs. He created a certain kind of uh, pyramid and explained that a person's first fears or the first thing that a person does is take care of, and what they always look to do is to take care of the things that he wants to make sure he needs most, which is usually revolves around their food and the place of lodging. That's what a person's most concerned. That would be the bottom of the pyramid. The next thing is their safety, safety meaning not only safety in their safety of where they go, what they do, but safety talking about their health, their sustenance, making a living, and that will be the next level. And then he goes up in the pyramids, and finally the highest uh, level or the least thing that a person thinks about is their spirituality or their self-esteem or other things like that. But when a person's called a hierarchy of needs, it's, some have debunked it, some have said it's the greatest thing, but the concept is that where does a person have their most energy placed. Of course, it's about for the food that we need to eat and to make sure we have a roof over our head. But probably a person's greatest fears or greatest worries are about his safety. Talking about a safety net, whether it's what they're going to live on, about their health. That's what people are most concerned about and probably occupy themselves mostly throughout the day. A person thinks about the majority of his day thinking about, spends his time making money. Sometimes people spend so much time making money, they don't even have time to spend it and use it properly. Many times people have the fear about their life, about their health, and about whatever it may be. Unfortunately, at the same time, it also causes that many times that people lose focus or become depressed and upset about of thinking of, you know, what's going to be... How are they going to be able to survive? How are they going to be able to live? Just an interesting anecdote in Hebrew, the word for worry is da'aga, which means worry, da'igis as they say in Yiddish. But da'aga is made up of four letters, dalid, aleph, gimel, and hey. If you look at those letters, they're seemingly the first five letters of the alphabet, but there's one letter missing. That's why it's only four letters. The letter that's missing is the letter bet. It has Aleph, it has Gimel, it has Dalet and Hey, but it's missing Bet. What does Bet stand for? Bitachon, faith in God. When a person lacks faith, what do they have? Da'agad, they have worry. But the bottom line is, the question is, how does a person, what's the first step as we know, is to taking care of 
a person's sustenance and place to sleep, which generally most people make sure that's number one priority. But the most, the, the bigger problem is, how do we always looking, and what is our concern about the second level, about our money? We're always looking to see if the bank covers whatever we spent, if the credit card's going to cover what we got, checking our blood pressure, checking going to the doctor, continuously trying to check and stay on top of making sure that we're A, financially secure and also healthily, healthy secure. Even more that, and people that have larger lives, if you want to call it, always want to make sure maybe they're still popular, so they're checking if anybody liked their Facebook post or if their Instagram post or if they're still uh, relevant to people, whatever it may be. But at the end of the day, the bottom line is people's worries are mostly focused on those two areas in life. Truthfully, to look at it even at a better angle, the Torah seemingly also has this type of theory where a person's worries are seemingly about those two ideas. If you think about it, and if you look in the Torah, the time where the Torah mentions about the concept of depression or worries or upset or looking back at what happened and therefore you're, so to speak, upset. In the book of Genesis, it mentions a woman will give birth and the Torah uses the terminology I will make a lot her sadness, her worry when she gives birth. God talks about after he created mankind and before he makes the flood, it says God was upset about how mankind turned out and he was depressed in his heart. He was despondent about what happened. We find the same thing idea also when it comes to uh, when Joseph was then again thrown into come back. I'm sorry, when the brothers come back from the field and they hear Dina was captured, and they say and the people were upset. They were despondent. Joseph is thrown into the pit. The brothers come down to Egypt. They finally find out who Joseph is. And Joseph tells them, don't worry that you sent me here. Don't be despondent by the fact that I am here in Egypt and you put me down here. Again, there are four different places that we find that the terminology of despondent is. What is the common denominator that the Torah uses this terminology of despondency or depression in all of these cases? So let's start off with the first case. Why would a lady be upset about birth? Isn't that the happiest time in life that she gave birth finally to a healthy child? Seemingly when a person gives birth, that would be the happiest time. There will be anything but despondency when a woman gives birth. Of course, we know today that there's postpartum and there's other things that people suffer from even after giving birth. But what is it from? Why does it come from? In, th- in technicality, in technically speaking in the Hebrew language, it should have said, Bitsar, with pain you will give birth which that is a very true reality. Why does it say with despondency you'll give birth? The commentaries, some Rabbi Shamshim Rafal Hirsch writes an interesting thing. He says, you know, when a woman gives birth to the child and right away they slap the child and you hear that cry and the woman at the same time while she gives a sigh of relaxation, wow, the healthy baby, but at the same time, all of a sudden, there's a level of despondency which comes in. Until that moment, that child was nourished, protected by the mother. The moment the child comes into the world, she lost control over that child. You don't know what's going to happen. 
And the level of despondency, and sometimes that's where postpartum can set in, is because you now all of a sudden lost your intrinsic ability to be able to control and have a connection with that child. The moment the child is breathing on its own, the child became independent, you no longer have any control on it. The same idea you want to compare to, so to speak, to when God talks about when the, Jewish pe- when the people of mankind were not behaving accordingly. So God uses the terminology that he was despondent. Again, because if you want to talk about seemingly God created the world with a certain vision, how people should or should not behave. And at the same time, what happened here, by giving them freedom of choice, they, so to speak, took their own way, which was not necessarily in accordance with the way God wanted. Go a step further, we come to the story of Yaakov and Dina, where Dina is captured. Why were the brothers despondent? Because now that she's captured, they have no control what they can do. How are they going to be able to take the situation and change it? Only because they finally came up with a plan. Were they able to change the situation? But when they heard of her capture, they were again despondent because they realized they moved into a new country and all of a sudden their sister was captured. Same ideas when the brothers come in front of uh, Joseph. They put Joseph in a ditch 22 years ago. He was sitting in a ditch. And over here, all of a sudden, they're coming in front of him and they see their lives have been turned upside down. They have no idea what's going to happen now. The ruler of Egypt is in front of them. They don't see any way out of this. And all of a sudden, they become despondent because of it. The bottom line is that we see is that, what we, that from all these ideas, or whatever the Torah uses, the terminology of despondency, is because the person lacks control, or if you can say lacks faith, in knowing what's going to happen. They don't see a way out of it. They don't see anything that they can do to be able to change the situation. What then? What is it that gives the Jewish person the faith throughout our lifetime? What gives the Jewish people the ability to stand up strong against the challenges that come in life, because probably greater than any challenge that comes to to us is how we're going to get out of it. More than the challenge that bothers the person that comes to him is what bothers him, am I going to be able to face it? And how do I know that this is not going to happen again? Many times we have different challenges in life, we overcome them, we deal with them. But then what happens next? How do I know this is not going to happen again? And how do I know that next time I will be able to be strong enough to stand up against it and overcome the challenge that happens to me? So what is it? What gives us the ability? What is there in our life that we can have to be able to have that proper equilibrium that will give us the ability to look forward and to be able to have that fortitude and strength and to stand strong with the faith in God? to be able to recognize that we are able to overcome whatever comes our way in life. So number one, which is probably the most important and what we're going to see from today's Torah reading, is that the bottom line is what keeps us in line and what gives us the ability to have the faith that nothing in the world should be able to affect us and shake us is recognizing and understanding and realizing that nothing in this world happens on its own. There is nothing in the world that forces it to happen. The only reason why something happens is because God wants it to happen. That means there is no such thing. Well, nature means that A, B, C has to happen. We can see that especially in the last few years we've seen that as much as we believe that science has all the answers, science has no answers. And the more we continue to learn into the world and the more we continue to look into the world, we continue to see those that think that nature itself that science gives me the way out, if not probably in more ways than one, we can see how science complicates things even more. And therefore, 
the number one rule that we have to put down is that there is an eye that hears, an eye that sees, an ear that hears, a mouth that speaks, and there's a pen that's writing every single event that happens in our life. It's not just happenstance. Nothing's just by coincidence. There is somebody that's pulling the strings and making sure it's all happening. And because of this, if we believe that everything is from God, if we believe that everything is happening because of a reason, then we have to be able to connect ourselves and cultivate our relationship with the one that's pulling the strings. And then we know that we'll be able to be in the right position. And whatever happens, it's because he wants that. And that's the purpose of it to happen. So let's understand it a little deeper. And let's get into the crux of it. So let's go back a little bit to where we are in this week's Torah reading. This week's Torah reading is more of a continuation of the last week's Torah reading. Last week's Torah reading left us, all, left, left us off in a little bit of a cliffhanger. We are Moshe comes with the elders of the Jews to Pharaoh, tells Pharaoh it's time to let the Jewish people go. Pharaoh says, not only am I not going to let you go, I'm going to make things even more difficult. How am I going to make things more difficult? You're now going to have to collect the straw, which until now you were all given a quota of straw that you were able to make your bricks. Now you're even going to have to collect your own straw. The Jewish people are up in arms and against Moses and Aaron and tell Moses and Aaron, we told you not to mix in. We're suffering in Egypt, that's enough. You didn't have to make it worse. Moses turns to God and tells God, Why did you make it so difficult for these people? Ever since I got here, things have gotten worse. This week's Torah reading begins with the following statement. God's answer to Moses of last week's Torah reading. And God tells him as follows. Now listen to the words here. And Elohim said to Moses, I am the name Havaya. I have appeared myself to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob with the name Kel Shakai. The name Havaya I haven't known to them. I have also made a covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan. I heard the pains and suffering of the Jewish people. Therefore, tell the Jewish people, I am Havaya. I am the name Yudke Vavke, Havaya. I will take them out of the land of Egypt, and they will know that I am Havaya, that, take, that heard their cries and took them out of Egypt. So what is God telling us here? God is saying something very unique. He says, I hear the suffering and the pain, but he says, here is where it all changes. Until now, the Jewish people were suffering, the exile was getting worse, and this is all about to change. This is all about to be transformed. How is it about to be transformed? Because until now, you had the name Kel Shakai, until now, you had the name Elohim, and now you're going to have the name Havaya. What does that make a difference? What are these names? What does this mean? Rashi, the commentary right away, comes and tells us, Until now I have shown the forf our forefathers by the name of Kelshakai, meaning I haven't yet shown them how I fulfill my promise. They haven't yet seen the end of the story. They only get the promises, but they haven't seen how they were fulfilled. These people who are in the land of Egypt will see the fulfillment of those prophecies. Over here, the question then is, what's God saying? Look in the first words. Vayedaber Elohim. Elohim says, I am Avaya. Make up your mind. Who are you? It's like saying, Hi, Joe. My name is Mark. My name is Mark, but my name is Tom. W which one is it? Make up your mind. What's your name? Is your name Elohim? Is your name Avaya? The commentator tells us, Vayedaber Elohim ani Avaya. What does this mean? What is God saying? Is he Elohim or Avaya? Secondly, what's the purpose of all this changing his name? 
If God didn't keep to his promises, or if they haven't seen the promises with the name Kael Shakai, why all of a sudden are we going to see the promises come to fulfillment with the name Havaya? What's that going to change? How is that going to change the actual performance of it? Even more so, what are the differences between God's names? Why is God sometimes used with certain names? I know we discussed this in our JLI class before, part of it, but here we're going to look at it a little, uh, a little deeper. Which is sometimes where, as we make a regular blessing, you can see the word is, Baruch Atah Hashem, blessed are you God, Havaya, Elokeinu, our God. So why the difference of the names? And why do we see that sometimes God uses the name Elokim, while sometimes God uses the name Havaya? An interesting thing you will find, that in this week's Torah reading, in this book of Exodus, for the first two chapters in the book of Exodus, the name Elokim is used. All of a sudden, when God comes to Moses, when he's standing at the burning bush, does he change from Elohim to Havaya, using this new name? The same idea we also see in the first book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, when God creates the heaven and the earth, and God creating the universe, the entire creation talks about using the name Elohim. Only once God creates the human being, and he tells him about the objectives and the rules, of the tree of knowledge, does he then all of a sudden change his name to Havaya? Why do we all of a sudden sometimes see the name Elohim, or many used for a majority of the time, and all of a sudden switch at a certain point? The same thing also, the question could be asked, it seems like that the name Havaya and Elohim are two separate identities, two separate entities. Sometimes they're used as one, and sometimes they're used together. Take one of the times in one of the very famous places where, Mount, where Elijah Mount Carmel, when he gathered all the Jewish people together to prove to them whether their belief in God is sustainable or their belief in God is accurate. And all of a sudden he brought and he challenged them to show them that, look, the people of the Baal, they don't believe in anything, they couldn't bring the sacrifice. And the Jewish people saw the absolute belief an absolute truism that exists in godliness, and they always yelled out in unison, Hashem Hu Elohim. And we say that every Yom Kippur seven times, Hashem Hu Elohim, Havaya is Elohim. What are we saying? Havaya is Elohim. Is Elohim and Havaya something different? What are we announcing that all of a sudden that my belief in God means Havaya Elohim, that Havaya is the same? What were they before and what were they afterwards? Why am I changing before and then why am I changing and afterwards? So simply said, somebody can explain that if you look at the word Elohim, where else is the name Elohim used? Actually, the name Elohim is not only used by God, but it's also used by defining um, judges or any time rulership, judgment is used, the name Elohim is used. So one can say that the name Elohim is, means judgment, uh, where, where in any effect, where God is, so to speak, being um, looking, scrutinizing, and looking, analyzing at the individual, therefore being judgmental, as a judge would be to be able to analyze and scrutinize any case. And therefore we say, to know that even when God is scrutinizing our, our ideas and when our actions, it also comes from the name of Havaya. The interesting thing is that if you look in the Torah, in the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy says as follows, and you will, this is book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4, verse 39. The Yadaita Ayoyim, and you should know today, 
you shall take it to your heart. That is Elohim. The Zohar says, this verse is actually a positive commandment. That we need to know that Havai and Elohim work in tandem and nothing to belongs to in idolatry. What is going on over here? So what's happening here? What is this Havaya? What is this Elohim? What is this that the Torah tells me I need to combine the two? I need to know that they're separate and then I need to know that they're connected. They're not idolatry. Sometimes God uses one and not the other and then He says, I am Havaya, you're not Havaya. What's happening here? What are these two names? What do they symbolize? Why was it because of this name that all of a sudden the redemption of the Jewish people can happen? And to be able to understand this, we're going to talk about one of the great... Um, the Hasidic discourse is probably that discussed this at most at length based on this verse in the book of Deuteronomy. A discourse that was written by the fifth Chabad Rebbe known famously as the Adaita Moskva that he said it while he started saying it while it was in Moscow. It goes on for about 10 pages explaining this exact idea. The difference between the name of Avai and Elohim, what they symbolize, what they reference and how they actually have a contemporary application and what it means for the exodus of Egypt. A few months ago, in uh, Israel, there was a headline. As you know, last year was the sabbatical year. This year is already the hakal year, the year after the sabbatical year. As you know, when it comes to vegetation and uh, crop growing, you need to have food the previous year to be able to have for the following year. And there was a headline a few months ago in Israel concerning a kibbutz, kibbutz called Chafetz Chaim, a religious kibbutz who completely didn't go by any, um, did not use any leeways or loopholes to be able to keep on working on their field. They stopped working on their field in the sabbatical year. And they announced, and they were able to see, that last year in their sixth year, the year before the sabbatical year, they had double the amount of crop. That means their market value of what they were able to sell was double the amount of any previous year. So we're talking about over here something very important. We're talking about a very business budget. You have every single year a certain amount of crop you're going to get. You're depending on it. You sell it. That's you make your profits. And over here, all of a sudden, a year where every year they predicted and they got X amount, that year, the sixth year before the sabbatical year, they made double. Now, what made them have double? Think about that for a moment. There was nothing different that they did the previous year. They planted the crop, they did the same routine, but all of a sudden this year they got double. What is that telling you? Not because somebody did something that they get double. It was because the govern, the one that governs what happens that our person should be able to have what comes out of the ground, decided that that year they should have double. The same idea is also that there's nothing in this world which causes, which we do, which because of that causes something to happen. That means, there's nothing that I can say that because I put A, I'm going to get B. Because many times there are many people that do A and don't get B. They're just because something happens so often, it doesn't mean that it has to happen. Let's think of it this way. Just because they planted 100 crops the first year, so they got 100 crops the second year, they got 100 crops the third year, but all of a sudden, the fifth year, they got 200 crops. There was nothing different they did. So the same explanation that says why they got 200 the sixth year tells you that there's no explanation to tell you why they got 100 the previous year. 
What my point is, is the same idea. Just because a person has money, went to work, doesn't mean he's going to get paid. Doesn't mean he's going to have money. And just because he has money, it doesn't mean that he's going to be able to use the money for what he wants. And to get what he wants. And just because you think you have the money, doesn't mean that, make, that you have the ability to spend it how you want, where you want, because you can spend it and all of a sudden other things can come up. Things you never thought of or imagined. Just because a person goes to a doctor, it doesn't mean he's going to be healed. Just because you have insurance, it doesn't make you feel better. And everything else in this world, everything that happens in this world, whether a person getting better or a person feeling better or making money, is because God tells us that we have to work in the world and make vessels for the blessing of God to happen. But without the blessing of God, these tools are meaningless. They are left there hanging in the, in, the, in the closet. If a person has a hammer hanging in his closet and he doesn't use it, he's not going to be able to bang in a nail with it. So you have a hammer to bang the nail in. So is the person banging in, is the hammer banging in the nail or is the person banging in the nail? The same idea is also, God gives us tools. And all the things that we see in the world, the whole financial market, the whole medical field, the whole science that exists in the world, we have to recognize that all these things are merely tools that God gives us that we can be able to live in this world. They themselves have zero power on their own. This exact message is the message that God was giving Moses at the beginning of this week's Torah reading. God tells him, Vayedaber Elohim, Elohim spoke and said, Ani Havaya, I am Havaya. What does that mean? Every single thing in this world has a dual ability. You have a hand, a hand can give, and a hand can hold back. Every single thing that a person does can be a way of giving and a way of holding back. There can be a way of kindness, a way of discipline. Whatever it is, think about any single thing in this world has the ability to show off or to hide, to be egotistic or to be humble. It all has a counterbalance. We can either do either one of them. The same idea is also the two names of Hashem, Havai and Elohim, represent these type of things. There's two types of ways how a God represents and corresponds with the world. There's Havaya, which Havaya comes from the name Mahave, He creates, which this is a level where God gives generously to everything that's there. He creates the miracles, the events that all happen in this world. It's all coming from that level of Havaya. But because it's all giving, you don't see it. It's continuous. It's continuously creating the world. It is what makes the world exist. But then you have on the other hand the name Elohim. The name Elohim is the opposite. It's judgment. It's discipline. It's a certain amount. In fact, the name Elohim comes from concealment. While Havaya is generous, generosity, if we want to call it chesed, in the Hebrew terminology, Elohim would be the gvura, the discipline of holding back. So while Havaya, when a person sees Havaya, they will see the entirety of God, but Elohim, you're not going to see godliness. Godliness will be concealed because it's discipline. It's only a certain amount at a time. In fact, Elohim and Shakai come from the same idea. The Medrash says, when Moses asks, what's your name? So God tells Moshe, who's asking my name? My name is dependent on what I'm doing. According to what I'm doing, I is my name. Sometimes I'm Shakai, sometimes I'm Elohim, sometimes I'm Avaya. When I'm benevolent, kind, and merciful, I'm Avaya. When I'm strict, I'm Elohim. 
For example, the Talmud says that when God created the universe, the universe was just spreading and spreading until he used the terminology shakai, which comes from the word die, which means stop, enough, I don't want you to be any bigger. So when God created the universe, what name did he use? Let's look in the first verse in the book of Genesis. Beresh is bara Elohim. God created the word Elohim. Interestingly enough, you will find that in the Hebrew dialect, everything has numerology. The same numeric value of the word Elohim is the same numeric value of the word Hateva, nature. So when you look at nature, you look at the world, what are you seeing? Nature. Seemingly, that's what you call it, nature. One can even deny God's existence. God forbid. But where is it coming from? The world was created in the level of Elohim in a way that should be concealment that you won't see godliness. That's why if you'll notice, throughout, as we mentioned before, throughout the book of Genesis, throughout the creation of the universe, what name is used? Elohim. When God comes along to Adam and he creates the human being and gives him the ability of choice and says, eat from the tree of knowledge or don't eat from the tree of knowledge, all of a sudden, what does it change to? Havaya. Because now he's something larger than just creating the universe. Where now it's talking about the soul of the individual. It's coming into the individual that all of a sudden, he now has to connect with something superiorly higher than what's concealed. The same idea is also when Moses is talking to, to God in the book of Exodus, where throughout the book of Exodus, he uses the terminology of Elohim because the Jewish people are being disciplined in the land of Egypt. When God comes to Moses and telling him to take him out and to take out the Jewish people and to take them out of Egypt, what does he then use? The name Havaya, because miraculous event. The entire episode of the burning bush was a Havaya type of event. A bush is being burning, but it's not really being consumed. That was a revelation of godliness, which is not in nature. So therefore was a level of Havaya. So what we see over here is and the same idea is also when we talk about the different types of levels, whenever it's Elohim, is talking about, you're going to see a concealment, while you talk about Avaya, you're going to see a revelation. So and right now, the way we see Avaya and Elohim as two separate entities. Elohim as the concealer, the nature, while Havaya is the revealer, the generous one, the one that's making all the miracles happen. What we see over here is while everything looks like that these two names are acting on two separate modalities, on two different ways, over here, all of a sudden, everything changes in this week's Torah reading. God comes to Moses and says as follows, And Hashem says to Moses, Elohim says right now, we're no longer two separate modalities. Now we're going to work in tandem. Elohim and Avaya are going to work as one. The revelation itself, we'll see, will be revealed in the concealment. There will be no longer concealment. Within nature itself, we will reveal the greatness of godliness. What does this mean? That even though until now, the way I set the universe, that even though until now there are certain situations, yes, nature, the sun comes up in the morning, goes down at night, but things will change. You'll see within nature, you're going to see the Havai, you're going to see the great power of God that happens. That means the Jewish people that are in Egypt, are suffering, they're only seeing the Elohim. In Egypt itself, they will now get to enjoy, and they will see now what Havai is all about. Imagine this kid, who is watching the puppets, 
And he's standing on the other side. He doesn't see what's happening behind stage and backstage. And he sees the puppets talking and making the whole show. And all of a sudden, you take him backstage and you're shown the person pulling the strings of the puppets. That's Havayin Elohim. You see the puppets in the front, the concealment, but also you see the one who's pulling the strings. There's another interesting parable that's given, a very fascinating parable that's given about this. There was once this spoiled child who just got whatever he wanted. And his father, of course, was getting really upset by the fact that this kid, spoiled brat, doesn't wake up in the morning, sleeps in until 2 o'clock, does nothing with himself all day. And his father used to rebuke him every single morning and said, what's going to be with you? How are you going to grow up to be a mensch? How are you going to become something alive for yourself? All you do is sleep in. Nothing's going to be of you. Finally, the kid said, you know what? That's it. I had enough of this. I'm leaving the house. He packs his bags, moves out of the house, and goes on a bench in the park and goes to sleep. And he's homeless. He's sleeping on a homeless bench. Uh, on the week for two weeks, he's sleeping outside as a homeless. He's not going to take a penny from his father. He just won't have anything to do with him. That's it. I'll show him. A young guy walks over to him and has a little Rahmanas on him. And the fellow walks over. He says, maybe you want to come to my house. He's sleeping here for two weeks. He brings him in his house, gives him a new pair of pants, a new shirt, gets him a little bit going, gives him a place to sleep. And as he finds him a job, and gives him a little bit of a job to do. He's working, he's making a few bucks. He finally gets himself a little bit together to look a little more of a mensch, learns a little bit of a trade, and he gets a job that he's able to work in a bakery. He works in the bakery. First he's a schlepper, then he becomes a manager. And he sees a manager, he's doing really well. He wants to buy the bakery. So he buys the bakery. But ever since he bought the bakery, boom, the whole thing, well, jeez. He was a good schlepper, but he wasn't a good manager. He's in the dumps. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He tried his luck. He's now he sees. He's like his father, but he doesn't want to admit. All of a sudden, one day, a guy comes into him and says, I saw you struggling. The bakery is up for foreclosure. Let me be your partner. I'll invest. You look like a hard worker. I'll invest in you. He invests in him, gives him the money. He buys off the bakery again. He buys one bakery, a second bakery. He has now five bakeries. See, he's a mega millionaire. He wants to now send a letter to his father. You see, huh? You said nothing will become of me? Look where I am today. He sends a letter to his father and says, Dad, you'll be happy to hear. I'm not a schlamazel. I'm not a lazy good for nothing. I made it in life. I'm doing great. And look, notwithstanding, even though I slept in, whatever you said, look where I am today. The father gets the letter. The father looks at the letter. He has a big smile on his face. He's happy. Look how successful the son is. But he takes the letter and writes back to his son. And he says, dear son, you know who sent the guy to pick you up off the park bench? That was my worker. You know who put you, gave, got you the job in the bakery? That was my bakery. You know who the wealthy guy that came and offered you to be a partner? That was a guy with my money. I'm happy that you're making it on your own. But you didn't do it all on your own. That's Elohim working with Shem Avaya. That's Elohim. The name Elohim, it's concealed. It doesn't look like it. We think we're all of a sudden dependent beings. We made the money. It's our brilliance that got us to be able to be where we are today. It's our brilliance that made us successful. It's our brilliance that it's, it's our beautiful education skills that made us our kids. All the wonderful things. It's not yours. It's God's blessing guiding you. And don't think you're independent. It's an unbelievable message. And this is exactly the message 
that God was telling Moses right before he was putting all the plagues that happened in Egypt. Every single plague that you look what happened in Egypt, what was it? God took nature and switched it a little bit. He took water, made it into blood. Put frogs, put them in the ovens. Took lice, put them in all over the people. Every single plague God took the nature, but played with it. What does that mean? You thought you had the whole nature worked out. You thought you had it all figured out. I'm going to tell you, no, 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 no. It's only nature because I made nature this way. Nature on its own doesn't have its own standing. Nature on its own doesn't have anything on its own. Think about it. If you think about the whole system, how the Jewish people, when they came out of Egypt, the Jewish people come out of Egypt, they're schlepping matzah on, the back, on their backs. They finish their matzah, they go, oh, to God, we need food. All of a sudden, food starts coming from heaven. Imagine, who would tell you once that food would come from heaven? That you wake up in the morning and you got your sandwich, you got all your food there. Doesn't make sense. But for 40 years, the Jewish people experienced manna coming from heaven. Now think about their children. What did they grow up knowing? Where does food come from? Heaven. All of a sudden, that generation comes down and goes into the land of Israel and says, no, 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 I'm going to give you a little parcel of land. You're going to take this kernel, you're going to put it in the ground, and out it's going to come wheat. What? Since when? I know food comes from heaven. But you'll tell the first people food from heaven. What? Food from heaven? You're nuts. So what was a miracle for the first people and was nature for the first people is now a miracle for the generation later because they were never used to it. So what is nature basically? Something I've gotten used to. And the moment a change happened in what I've gotten used to, what am I going to call it? A miracle. Why do I call it a miraculous event? Any miraculous event. That guy crossed the street and was saved the split second from the car that was coming towards him. Why people cross the street all the time? Because generally when people cross the street, usually they see the car coming and they're able to make it across the street quickly. This time he made it across the split. It was something I'm not used to. So for people, planting seedling into the ground is a miracle. And for somebody, food from heaven is a miracle. But in essence, it's the exact same miracle. They both came from God. And therefore, everything that happens in our life, Everything we see, whether it's the seedling that rots and because of that a big bushel of wheat comes out, or whether the, the doctor that's able to give us the right medication to help us heal, every single part of our life, every single facet of our life is a miracle. Just, there are certain miracles that we've become accustomed to. There are certain miracles that we become expected to see. This is Elohim working with Havaya. This is what God's message was to the Jewish people and to Moses. Now you're going to see that it's not two separate modalities like you always thought. There's nature and there's above nature. There's miracles and there's nature. Miracles are nature. Nature is miracles. It's the same exact thing. It's just a matter of what you're used to. The same idea. Look at the Nile River. Look at the way the Nile River was. Nile River is the greatest, the largest, I think, river in the world. I think it goes for over seven, uh, the Nile River is, I think, 7,000 kilometers, starts all the way from Africa and goes all the way, the big stretch that it goes to. What was the Nile River about? That all of a sudden, if you look, the debate that Moses has with Pharaoh was always about the Nile River. The first plague was on the Nile River. Where does he meet Pharaohs by the Nile River? Moses, as a child, was put into the Nile River. Why is it always focusing about the Nile River? Because over here, there were two objectives that were happening here. While God was taking the Jewish people out of Egypt, He was also taking Egypt out of Egypt. 
He was taking Egypt out of the mentality of Egypt, out of the mindset of Egypt. Taking them out of this mindset of dependency of the Nile River. The Nile River was to the, to the Egyptians as their God. The Nile River was something that the, Jew, that the Egyptians viewed as something which was their sustenance of life. That's where it all came from. The Nile River is where Moses' mom put him that he should be saved. Why? Because you see the constant conflict of what the Nile River is all about. From the Egyptian side, the Nile River was a Nile that was their savior, was their idolatry, something that they believed in. Thought that this is what is going to give them everything else. But on the other hand, what does Moshe show the Nile River is what I'm going to change to blood. What frogs are going to come out from. This is where the savior of the Jewish people comes about. Because he's transforming the Nile River, showing them where you look at nature is in fact a miraculous event. Even more so. The Nile River was the idea, thinking that they're the most powerful country. When Pharaoh went to the Nile River, the water came up to him. He, the Nile River would come up and because of that, it would give the whole of Egypt water and sustenance. Not like the land of Israel where they were dependent on rain. They thought, we're immutable. Nobody can hurt us. Nobody can hurt us. We're solid. We're the superpower of the world. The same idea that the Arabs think with their oil, the same idea that North Korea thinks with their uh, nuclear bomb, or America thinks with their money. Every single country thinks that nobody can hurt them because of their superpower of who they were, whether it was the Romans or the Greeks. And what does God come along and say? No, 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 no. This Nile River, one little child floating in the Nile River is going to change a whole paradigm. Even more so. This was in fact what Pharaoh was fighting. It wasn't just a physical war, it was also a spiritual ideological war. Pharaoh was saying the Nile River, the natural powers, but over superpower. The natural power that gives us the ability to be able to supersede anything that's there. And over here, what is, and what is Pharaoh arguing? Nature, science, that's what I have. That's what works for me. That's what I create. That's what, that's what we serve. That's what we believe in. Science. We believe in science. We're the one that did it. Not God has anything to do with it. We believe in the science and that's why it's making it happen. What does God have to do with anything? But Moshe says, no. Us Jews are from the land of Israel. We have to pray for rain. We know that in order for crop to grow, it needs a blessing of Almighty God. That's why the land of Israel was so important for the Jewish people because there they have to have a constant faith in God that it to be able to exist. And therefore Moses comes along to Pharaoh and says, let the Jewish people go because I said so. Not because of any rationale, not because of any reason, because I said so. And what does our Pharaoh argue? What do you mean I said so? I don't believe in I said so's. I believe in science. I need to see cause and effect. I see a river. I, that's why I think it's powerful. Moshe says, no. I have no relationship with that. And for that reason as well, what was the first thing that happened? What was the first decree? Was on the water. The decree was that the water became blood. Not only that, if you take it, the argument that was, that Pharaoh had, the initial argument that Pharaoh wanted to do, telling by killing the Jewish boys, putting the Jewish boys in the Nile River, and making the Jewish girls to be assimilated. Pharaoh was not just fighting a physical war against the Jewish people, but also a spiritual war to be able to take them away from the dependency on Almighty God. Moshe comes along and says, that's just the opposite. Yo, Heather and Miriam, they were the first two women to tell Pharaoh, no, nah, that's not the way it works. 
You're going to tell us to kill the Jewish boys. It's not happening because we don't listen to you. Nature is not who decides, who dictates what we do. There's a miraculous event in everything that's happening in our life. Not only that, take it even a step further. What was Moshe's name given? All of a sudden, while all the Jewish people are commanded, they have to throw their children in the Nile River. Over here, there's a Jewish child that stands up against the edict of Pharaoh. He is placed into a basket. And his basket, because of that, he's in the Nile River, but in the basket. And who comes to greet him? The daughter of Pharaoh. And the daughter of Pharaoh takes him and gives him a name. Moshe. What is the name Moshe? Moshe is a verb. I draw out. Moshe is not a noun. Whence when do you give a person a name, a verb? Walking, talking. I draw out. Because the daughter of Pharaoh understood and saw. It is not with a fact. It's not with what we see. But when Moshe will teach the Jewish people, Moshe will not only draw, not only does he come out of the Nile River, but he will continue to draw people out of the Nile River. He will teach the Jewish people that we are not dependent on physical and materialism. We are not dependent on science. We are not dependent on nature. Nature is godliness. And the same way I see this here today, tomorrow can be different. What we see from over here is the bottom line. As the Rebbe puts it, the bottom line is that the Nile River was the source of the sustenance of the Egyptians. They believed that their source of sustenance is the Nile River. They believed only in the Nile River. They did not realize that there's a God behind it. And over here what the Jewish people were meant to do was when they were going to by taking and transforming the Nile River. Over here what they came to see is that the Nile River transformed into a conduit of godliness of showing the Jewish people that nature itself is a miracle. This is what the Torah begins in this week's Torah reading. Moshe is telling the Jewish people. God's telling Moshe. God says, I am God, Elohim, and Avaya, nature, a miracle are one modality. They're not two separate ways. And that's why when we make a blessing, we say, Baruch Atah Hashem Alekeinu, blessed are you, God, our God, saying that the way we have, what we have is because we believe that everything that we have is from God, even in the most natural things. And therefore, as we say, and as the previous Rebbe wrote, and it's brought down, that the person can work as much as he wants, not one extra sweat is going to get you an extra penny. Whatever God decides and dictates you have, that's what you're going to have, and that's the way you're going to live. As long as you have your faith in God, and you believe that it's all coming from God, then you know that it's going to be taken care of. We have to make the vessels. We have to work. We have to go to the doctor. We have to make sure that we have the vessels. But we have to remember that ultimately... Not one extra penny or one extra day are we going to be able to gain if it's not from the blessing of God. This was the message that the Jewish people had when they were coming out of Egypt. This is the message that was given to us for eternity as we are now in every stage of our life to recognize that Elohim and Avaya, nature, the concealment of God, and Avaya, the miracles and events, are all but one of the same. When we come to understand it and appreciate it, this automatically, our level of despondency that we started off with, that a person can have a level of despondency because of their safety and security of the things that they're most worried about, that worry auto all of a sudden can dissipate. Because we recognize that everything that I have and everything that I'm going to have and everything that I should have is all in the blessing of God.